peace on earth is one of the blessed refrains of Christmas. Yet this year it feels more like an earnest plea than it does a prayerful sentiment. We long for peace that would bring healing for our world suffering from the coronavirus pandemic. Peace that would allow us freedom and safety to move about without fear of catching or spreading the virus. Peace that would bridge the social and political divide in our nation. Peace that would reconcile the separation and inequities of racial biases. Peace that would mend brokenness in family relationships. And peace that would bring relief and solace to every troubled heart. Peace for you, peace for me, peace for all. While we might see glimpses or outlines of such peace, we don't see a clear enough picture of it. In our Advent sermon series, we've addressed how peace is God's idea and how the blessing of peace is related to God's presence. That peace is personal and relational. That what we experience as inner peace must be shared and demonstrated outwardly in word and deed to the extent that there is no peace for me unless and until there is peace for you. And we've taken a hard look at what it means to live without peace, what our world is like when peace is hidden or absent. Today I will speak of the work of making peace. Once we know God's gift of peace offered to us in the life, teaching, and atoning death of Jesus, how do we relate this blessing of peace in our world? Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What is this work of making peace we are called to do in partnership with God? I've selected two scripture readings. The first one is from Psalm 34. Characteristic of wisdom literature, this passage provides a wisdom saying in the form of instruction of what it means to live the good life. It prescribes three actions, one of which is to seek peace and pursue it. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. In the first half of this chapter, the Apostle Paul describes our former relationship with God as one of alienation, employing emphatic phrases like, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned. But in Christ Jesus, our relationship with God has been made right and whole. Now in the second half of this chapter, Paul includes, Paul addresses the state of our relationship with one another. Again, he begins with a description of how we were formerly alienated from one another. Yet we who were once separated and far off have been brought near and reconciled and now can live at peace through our relationship, our mutual relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us now give our attention to the reading of these passages read for us by Eileen Haynes. Our first scripture reading is a wisdom saying from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 14. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. 
Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Our second scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and surrounding communities. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 17. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The Word of the Lord. The coming of Jesus into our world has resolved the problem of two primary relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Sin had caused an alienation and separation between us and God. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has done all that was needed for us to find our way back and to be at peace with God. This saving act of Jesus has likewise resolved our distance and distrust of our relationship with, with others. Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. This statement is both an affirmation of our new life together and an exhortation to make good on what we've received. In the Roman Empire of the first century, during which time Paul lived, city centers like Damascus, Corinth, and Ephesus were inhabited by diverse groups of people representing various races and cultures. Yet within the newly formed Christian community, two principal groups struggled to share life together, Jews and Gentiles. Prior to their sharing a common faith, the only thing these two groups held in common was their mutual disapproval and disdain each for the other. Gentiles considered Jews to be marginal, minority people with strange and repressive cultural practices. Jews, on the other hand, regarded Gentiles as godless, immoral people and sought to keep their distance from them as much as possible. Paul says this us-them dichotomy has no place in the community to which Christ has called us. Whatever separation, alienation, and hostility there once was has now been removed by Christ. So important is this realization for Paul that he delineates it in detail. He says Jesus has made the two groups into one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall. He's created one new humanity, thus making peace a reality. And he's put to death the hostility. He proclaims peace to you and peace to me or peace to them. No doubt Paul gives so much attention to this newly formed humanity because the two groups continued to struggle to make peace 
with one another. We know what that is like. Today we face a similar challenge of partnering with God to make peace a reality between white Christians and Christians of color, especially our brothers and sisters who are black. It takes work to understand the racial divide, disparities and injustices our fellow Christians who are black live with and have lived with all their lives. More than just a slogan on a signboard, I'm convinced the Apostle Paul would agree that where there is no justice, there is no peace. Yet if Jesus is our peace, we must make the effort to learn and work toward making peace a reality in our churches, in our communities, and in our world. In the church email sent out this week, I listed comments from some 40 to 50 people, I mean, comments from some of the 40 to 50 people who have participated in learning about racism and social justice through our Learn, Pray, Act for Racial Justice class and our literature discussion group. I appreciated the openness and vulnerability of these individuals who shared how they're growing in their understanding and awareness of racism and how it affects us all. One of the comments I did not list summarized well what many of us have had to admit. I did not know what I did not know. I've learned that I must be respectful and see things through others' eyes. To understand how the words I might use may be harmful or disrespectful. Another participant said, I desire myself and my church to be a reflection of Christ when it comes to learning, speaking up, and educating about injustice and racism. The summer of my first year of seminary, I served as an intern at Fresno First Presbyterian Church. One day I was navigating the different routes I could take to downtown Fresno where the church is located. I came upon an intersection that split off in four directions rather than the usual three. Seeing the street I wanted to be on, I steered my car in that direction and maneuvered safely through the intersection. To my surprise, I saw a flashing light of a police car in my rearview mirror. The officer told me I had made an illegal turn at the intersection. In my defense, I explained that I was new to the area and that that I didn't know that the turn I made was prohibited. Hoping he would show me mercy and give me only a warning, he handed me a ticket and said, Sir, It doesn't matter that you claim you didn't know the right of way. It is your responsibility to know. A common acknowledgement of those of us who have taken up the challenge to learn about racism is that it takes work on our part. It requires us to be willing to learn and to assume responsibility for what we do not know. Among the many voices I have been introduced to is psychotherapist Dr. Kenneth Hardy. He is the director of the Eichenberg Institute for Relationships in New York City, where he also serves as a clinical 
and organizational consultant. A former professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia and Syracuse University in New York, Hardy recently gave a presentation to the Presbytery of San Francisco on the topic of how to be an ally. To begin the work of making peace, Hardy says, we must know ourselves as racial beings, becoming socialized racially. People of color, especially black people, know who we are. I've been thinking about race since I was four years of age, Hardy said. The talk my family had with me was a talk about what it means to be black and how race impacts all of life. But few whites have ever asked the question, what does it mean to be white? Or how does my being white affect my life? Because the context of a person who is white is different than the context of a person of color, our realities are different. We have very little in common and there appears to be no good way to bridge the chasm between us. This is one of the reasons why we who are white have, have work to do in order to make peace, to reconcile differences, and to right wrongs. Like learning to be an apprentice of Jesus, the first and most important work we undertake is the work of our inner self. Hardy de describes this self-examination in three stages, seeing, being, and doing. Before we can begin to do, we have to train our eyes to see. Only then are we able to see all the ways race is intertwined in all we do. The reason we don't see it is that our eyes are not trained. For many of us, it took a phone video focused on the inhumane arrest of George Floyd for us to see with our own eyes the mistreatment and violence so many have complained of and protested against for years. Because our eyes were directed to see, a good number of our citizens throughout our country have reached a moral tipping point a point that has led us to work for lasting change. What we are learning is that being white in America gives us an advantage of unearned privilege. Hardy, Hardy observes that there are three possible responses of what we can do about this. Number one, we can ignore our privilege, in which case we misuse it. We can deny our privilege, in which case we abuse it. Or thirdly, we can acknowledge our privilege, in which case we learn to use it responsibly. To whom much is given, much is expected. Because we are in relationship with one another, as Christians, we have a responsibility to look after each other. If I have more in the way of resources, and possessions or privilege, I have more to give. Hardy suggests we use this metric. You know you're using your privilege responsibly when it becomes a burden, not a luxury. If on the other hand, I choose to use it as a luxury, 
then I can rest assured that someone else somewhere is suffering mightily. If I have more, it means someone with whom I am connected has less. As a church, we have only begun to do the work of learning about racism and social justice. We will offer more classes, discussion groups, lecture series, movie nights, and video presentations in the coming months. I challenge each of us to participate at some level, at some time in the near future, so that together we might do the work of making peace where it is sorely needed. In the 2004 movie, The Terminal, a man arrives at JFK International Airport only to learn that his passport is invalid because his country of origin is embroiled in a civil war. Because his homeland is not at peace, he is a man without peace and he has no place to go. He speaks little English and the U.S. Customs official has trouble trying to find a way to explain to the man his predicament. Finally, what comes out and is slowly repeated by Mr. Navorsky from Krakowia is this. You are unacceptable. You are unacceptable. We don't have to be from a foreign country to feel the effect of this kind of alienation and disregard. But the peace Jesus brought, the peace Jesus preached to those far off and those near, has made it possible for us not only to accept one another, but to love and serve one another as one new humanity in Christ. May such a clear picture of peace be our focus now and always. Amen.